This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou, ngā mihi nui ki a koutou katoa. Welcome to The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. I'm Shannon Burns, I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society, and it's my pleasure to bring you this episode in which I chat to a very special guest, play a couple of songs and recommend a couple of resources. Just quickly, the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, is a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch. The CSS presents regular educational and social events, and is also affiliated to the Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, or the NZFSS. We love our acronyms. I'll have more to say about the CSS and the NZFSS at the end of this episode, which is actually a little longer than usual, so listen through for details of the first ever NZFSS conference and other activities. For now, you can head to socialistsocieties.org.nz to learn more about the CSS, the NZFSS and other socialist societies affiliated to it. If you'd like to get in touch with the CSS or you have something to say about the end of history, please feel free to send an email to canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. Okie doke, so earlier in the month, the CSS was lucky enough to host Brett Christophers, a professor in the Department of Human Geography at Uppsala University in Sweden. Brett gave a talk titled Fossilised Capital, Why the Transition to Renewables is Going Too Slowly. The talk was really well attended and super interesting, and Brett kindly agreed to sit down with me afterward to go over some of the content of his talk, and also to answer some other questions about geography and what it can tell us about capitalism. Brett is an extremely generous conversationalist, and I really enjoyed talking with him. I hope you enjoy our chat too after which I'll be back with resources and more. Cool, so can I please ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Brett Christophers and I am a professor of geography uh, based at Uppsala University in Sweden and I am here visiting New Zealand for two weeks. Excellent. Um, how long have you been based in Sweden? So I have been in Sweden for 15 years um, and actually... I moved there from New Zealand, so uh, between 2005 and 2008, I was uh, a PhD student at the University of Auckland Excellent. Uh, in the geography department there, and as soon as I finished my PhD, it was off to Sweden. Cool, and had you been there before? Uh, I had been there before, but only very, very briefly, so uh, I moved there because my wife is Swedish. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> cool. Um, and it's very nice to have you in Ōtautahi. You've caught um, the city on a lovely day. We've had <laughs> snow for the first time in some time. Yeah, so. it feels like home for me. Yeah. So. <laughs> Excellent. 
if you would like to, I'm going to ask you a question about geography, actually, and your yep. discipline. Okay. But if you feel as part of that you want to elaborate any more about yourself and how you came to be where you are, mm-hmm. feel free to do that too. So I took some notes last night when you spoke for the Canterbury Socialist Society mm-hmm. at Space Academy. And one of the notes that I took down was a bit of a quote from you when you said you were interested in changing patterns and regimes of ownership. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that turn of phrase. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and I thought you could maybe tell me about your approach to geography on the one hand. Yep. And then secondly, what can geography specifically as a discipline tell us about capitalism? Okay. Yeah. Those are very good questions. <laughs> and actually not questions that I'd expected. So, um, so geography as a discipline, first of all, geography is an odd discipline at uh, the, the kind of university slash scholarly level. Yeah, it's obviously very different from geography at school. Uh, and I mean, I'm a human geographer uh, rather than a physical geographer. So it's not, you know, mountains and rivers and soils and stuff for me. It's, I guess, what you would call uh, the whole ensemble of the arrangement of human activity on the surface of the earth. And it's, I guess, how I, when I struggle sometimes <laughs> to define it like all geographers do. But the, the, I suppose the way I choose to define it is that Geography is kind of a melange of all the other social sciences, so economics, sociology, uh, also history, political science. But it, it, it tends to give all of those things a kind of geographical or spatial inflection. And so uh, instead of history, you have historical geography. Instead of economics, you have economic geography. Instead of sociology, you have social geography. And so an economic geographer, which, which is, I guess, what I see myself principally as, Instead of being interested, for example, in economics in a kind of abstract sort of sometimes economics is accused of being a kind of head, angels on the head of a pin sense that it's kind of abstracted from the real world. Geographers try to make things very, very grounded, very, very real and are interested in, you know, specifically geographical questions about where economic activity takes place, uh, why it takes place, how the economy binds together places that are both near and far from one another so those those types of questions and I suppose the answer I would give to the the question the second question you had I think I would sort of defer to to the arguments of of uh, David Harvey who's kind of a and I guess an academic hero of mine of many people I'm yeah, sure <laughs> absolutely and and you know he's he has always argued I mean I guess one of his most consistent arguments throughout his career has been that it is that is that capitalism has a very distinctive set of geographies and that if we don't understand the geographical configurations of capitalism, then we don't really understand capitalism. So he would argue that things like uneven geographical development, why some places develop very, very rapidly and very progressively, um, why we find those such as place, places alongside places of great deprivation that are often not far from one another, he would say that those patterns of uneven geographical development are part and parcel of capitalism. The uneven development is, a, is in fact kind of the motor of capitalism. So he would say, and I think he's actually conclusively shown, that if you don't understand the spatial configurations that capitalism creates as well as occupying then you don't really understand capitalism and I, I think I would genuinely agree with that. Yeah definitely I must um, first off you made me think a little bit of thinking about my sort of feminist literature kind of background myself but um, a bit about Donna Haraway and sort of situated knowledge is these things take place somewhere as opposed to in that sort of the god trick Ab- of nowhere. <laughs> absolutely yeah no no absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Um, 
I will confess that I'm one of those people who did geography in high school just for the field trips um, <laughs> to go whale watching and go on a glacier. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> and haven't thought too much about it since. So I really appreciate you starting the conversation um, in that way. But in preparing for our talk, I did. It sort of occurred to me that you know you said I'm a human geographer, not a physical geographer, but there is implicit in geography that kind of dialectic. Yep, absolutely. You know, yeah, and that's the world great... we inhabit and how we. Yeah. Acted or acted upon by it. That's a, that's a great point, and and that, absolutely that's true. And I think that if you had to describe geography as a totality, I think that that you know you would be hard pressed to find to to come up with a better definition than the study of the relationship between humanity and its environment. So how humans today and historically have shaped the natural world, but also how in turn they have been shaped not determined, but but certainly shaped and influenced absolutely. by uh, the physical environments that they occupy. And, and absolutely, what you know, for, you know I'm, I'm one of those geographers who tends to kind of cleave off the human from the natural environment, but I think the best geographers are those who, who examine precisely that dialectical relationship between humanity and the natural world. Yeah, awesome. So I wondered if you could tell me about some of your works, and I'm talking specifically about the new enclosure, mm-hmm. the appropriation of public land in neoliberal Britain, and also rentier capitalism, yep. who owns the economy and who pays for it. Yep. Those were two books that I published with Verso, the first of them in 2018, uh, and the second one in 2020. And, and as I'll explain in a minute, the second one emerged very much organically out of, out of the first one. Uh, I never would have written the second one if I hadn't researched and written the first one. Uh, so the new the, the new enclosure is a book about a very specific topic, which is uh, the the large scale privatisation of public land in Britain uh, that has occurred since the end of the nineteen seventies. Uh, so it's it's about all aspects of that process. So it's about the scale on which that privatisation of public land has occurred. Uh, it's about why it happened. It's about how it happened. You know, it was far from straightforward that it that it should happen, or that it should happen in in the ways that it did. And it's about some of the consequences of that. And I guess the the, the question of consequences brings the kind of main title into question. Uh, there's an obvious allusion in or reference in the title back to the original enclosures uh, through which England's uh, peasantry was was stripped of its access to the use of uh, communal rights to the land and uh, you know, large-scale migration to early industrial cities and, and, and then selling their labour to early industrial capital. And, 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 and obviously there's been a massive literature that details the, the pretty massive consequences of the original enclosure movement. And, I, and I'm basically arguing with that title, that though the, 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 the new enclosure, as I call it, is certainly not on the same scale and certainly it doesn't have the, the quite the degree of violent consequences that the original enclosures have. But it's actually, in some ways, the consequences have, ble- have, have resembled it insofar as the land that has been privatised was in, was in many cases land that served some kind of public benefit in one way or another. And in it being privatised, that public benefit has, has been lost in most, in most cases. Can you think of... Any sort of quick examples yeah. off the top of your head that you could use to yeah. demonstrate? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll give a very kind of 
kind of minor example and then a much more kind of obvious major example. So the minor example would be something like uh, local council allotments. Um, I, I'm not sure if this is this is true also in New Zealand, but in the UK, local councils have long had an obligation to make available uh, local land for local allotments. So for, you know, small scale, non-commercial growing of, of plants and crops or whatever else it might be. But one of the uh, main types of land that local authorities or local councils have sold off over the last 30 or 40 years, often I would emphasise not by choice, but but by kind of persuasion, coercion, whatever the word might be from central government, have sold off a lot of of that land uh, to private sector actors. And one of the obvious results of, of that has been that the, uh, with with the diminishing availability of land for allotments in in many parts of the country, uh, the the queue for allotments has has just mushroomed. And so, you know, you might say, well, that's a very a very minor example, but I think it's representative of a broader phenomenon, which is which is that land that in many cases has traditionally been available to serve a public benefit of one kind or another, as it enters into private hands. It doesn't serve those public benefits any for, anymore for a simple reason, which is that those do not represent profit-generating activities, That's right? right? And so, and so you get it's not its purpose anymore. No, I mean, as I said, as I say in the book, I mean, what land privatization has kind of led to is a massive and kind of systemic uh, form of market failure because there are a whole set of activities that it's not in the private sector's interest to provide with land because they don't generate profits. So that that's a kind of relatively minor example. The major example would be housing. Right. Yep. So so everyone, I'm sure all of your listeners will know that in the UK, as in many other countries, uh, there's been huge privatisation of housing in the UK, beginning at the end of the 1970s with uh, uh, the commencement of the Thatcher administration. And obviously, when when housing was privatised, the land on which it sat was usually privatised along with it. And uh, though in many cases, land has been uh, sold by the public sector in the UK specifically with a view to land being developed for the purposes of residential development. And that's been particularly case in the last 15 years or so. So mm. government, the government centrally and locally has sold land on the premise that that land will be developed to help alleviate housing shortages and so on. Well, not surprisingly, when that land is sold and the private sector proceeds in some cases to develop housing on that land... It's not affordable. It's not genuinely affordable housing mm. that gets developed precisely because it's not in, in the financial in the financial interest of those actors to provide genuinely affordable housing. They've often had to pay quite a lot of money for that land, and the only way they're going to be able to, to generate a return on their investment is developing relatively expensive housing. And so again, it's this another case of huge market failure, where land that was previously owned by the public sector and which housed housing that was affordable, public housing, council housing has disappeared and in its place has uh, you have land that in some cases is not used for residential development at all, it's used for golf courses or whatever <laughs> else it might be, or is used for housing but it's not used for affordable housing. And so that's what I'm getting at with this sense of kind of enclosure, that you have this kind of whole set of deleterious social consequences that have emerged from that. And I can see the echo of the enclosure and the, you know, people often talk about gentrification or whatever and how it severs those sometimes intergenerational bonds between people and place, you know? Absolutely. Geography. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very geographical book in that sense. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yes. Thank you. Yes. What about uh, rentier capitalism? So, so 
one of the one of the main arguments of and observations, I guess, of the new enclosure book was that one of the results of that privatization program, and it was a and, and still is a program, has been the growth of a a class of capitalist corporations whose business is essentially land rent. And and those those actors, so property companies, property developers, and also many financial institutions, um, have have become increasingly focused upon acquiring land, including from public sector buyers, hoarding land, reinforcing legal rights to the ownership of that land, and generating rents from the ownership and leasing of that of that land. And so that's become as more and more land has entered the private sector in the in, in Britain, land ownership and land rent have become increasingly prominent components of the of the British economy during that period. Stands to reason. Uh, and there's plenty of data that you can use to to kind of substantiate that that fact. And 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 so while I was working on that and thinking about capitalism more broadly in the UK, but not just in the UK, something that struck me was that that basic model of rentierism, getting hold of assets, doing everything you can to make sure that you have a form of kind of monopoly ownership of those assets so that others can't infringe on your private property rights and others can't limit your capacity to do with that asset exactly what you want to do with it and trying to extract income from conditioning ways in which that land is accessed and used by others that actually that basic economic model does not just apply to land it it applies to a whole range of other types of assets in contempt in contemporary capitalism and so what what the the rentier capitalism book does is says well look um if you look at content if you look at the economy today and particularly if you look at the british economy the uk economy which I, which i argue is kind of a quintessential case of this what you see is that to a significant extent the economy consists of rentier type institutions rentier corporations who do what land rentiers do but they do it with with regard to a whole range of assets that include land but not only are limited to land so the contemporary contemporary sorry rentier economy is not just about land rent it's about financial rent so earning income on financial assets of one kind or another it's about intellectual property rents so earning income through the creation and policing of patents and and copyright and trademark it's about natural resource rents so things like oil and gas resources oil and gas reserves exactly the same questions around how are they acquired you know under what terms of private property rights are they acquired and monetized and so on Uh, it's about platform rents so I argue that if you, if you think about the big IT companies today, whose business in significant part is about establishing platforms and controlling the trade that occurs through those platforms, then they're extracting a rent from those assets as well. It even seems, sorry to cut you off, but in the day-to-day stuff, like Netflix, Spotify, yeah, 100%. You know, Adobe, yeah, no. all of that kind of Ab- stuff. Absolutely. And then also another one that I would point out is infrastructure rents. And so, as, as, as many listeners might know, huge, a, a huge array of basic infrastructures that used to be owned by the public sector in the UK have been privatised in recent decades. So water delivery infrastructures, transportation infrastructures, electricity transmission and distribution infrastructures. And now what their owners do is essentially act as rentiers, right? They... Uh, have acquired those assets, 
and they control those assets. And essentially, they make money by dictating the terms on which others are able to provide services using those infrastructures and setting the cost at which others are able to use those infrastructures. So that's the basic argument of the book is that you, you have a you know, a huge array of sectors, which actually makes up for much of the economy in the UK today, which is essentially about rent. If we understand rent as an income that is earned or extracted by virtue of ownership or control of a scarce asset of some kind or another, and as I say, that that's some kind or another is increasingly diverse today. And and so that that's the book. So there's a there's a chapter dedicated to each of those key types of assets, so land, finance, intellectual property, and so on and so forth. And I guess the last thing I'd say is that one thing the book tries to work, two things the book tries to do is, is one, ask the question of why has the UK in particular been a particular kind of particularly fertile breeding ground for contemporary rentier type behavior? Um, and I think there's a, there's a series of reasons for that. And then the other thing it does is say, say we well, you know, well, what are the, some of the consequences of this? What are the consequences of it for those people, so ordinary people whose lives to one extent or another depend upon using these types of assets to get water into their house, for example? Um, and also, but also, what does it mean for the UK's economy at large? And so one of the arguments I try to make is that you can't really understand some of the problems that, that economic commentators have for quite some time now, described of the UK economy, so declining growth, declining productivity, those sorts of things, without really paying close attention to the rentier nature of the contemporary economy and the way in which that tends to encourage uh, kind of the hoarding and sweating of assets rather than investment in things like labour productivity. Excellent. Thank you so much. What really helpful summaries. That's awesome. So... Your latest work uh, is Our Lives in Their Portfolios, Why Asset Managers Own the World. Why do asset managers own <laughs> the world? Very quickly. Yeah. And also, with reference to your talk last night, what is the connection between asset management and the environmental energy production? Yep. Okay. Yeah, those are, those are good questions. <laughs> Big questions. And, and I suppose I'll extend it into three questions. And I'll, so the one I'll add or insert, I'll insert at the beginning, which is which is kind of what is an asset manager? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 I suppose I should say that I'm, I'm sure there's lots of listeners that know precisely what an asset manager is. Uh, and I so apologise yeah, to those. Helpful to know that we're all thinking about the same yes, thing, though. Exactly. So an, so it's actually really simple to get to get one's head around. I think in terms of the the basics. So an asset management asset management firm, an asset manager, is simply a type of financial investment institution. It's an investment company, but of a particular type. And and the thing that differentiates asset managers from other types of institutional investment firm, the main thing that differentiates them, is that the money they invest largely is not theirs. So they principally invest other people's money. And therefore, they make money in a very particular way, which is by charging fees to those whose money they invest so they take say your or my money they try and invest it in a way to earn a profit for us and they charge us fees for doing that and they charge fees of all, all various different types so that's their business essentially and the the book is about a particular form of investment that they that they have increasingly 
undertaken in recent years, and this is where the kind of the, the world reference comes in. It's not a very humble title, but actually, <laughs> but actually, subtitle. I mean, but actually, it's probably worth pointing out that it that it, it it's not a subtitle that I chose myself. That was the publisher's choice of subtitle. <laughs> so it's a very grandiose title. Yeah. But anyway, it um, sounds kind of nice. We ring to it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So if you go back to prior to the nineteen eighties. Asset managers and and some of the key names here are comp- that people would have heard of are from the US companies like BlackRock, Carlyle, uh, Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, Blackstone. In Australia, there's a very significant asset management firm, Macquarie, which is which is a bank, but but the biggest part of the bank is its asset management arm. And Macquarie plays a very significant role in the book, actually. So if you if you go back to the 1970s and before that. Not only was asset management actually only a relatively small business, they didn't manage much money for others, but when they did manage money for others and when they invested that money, they invested it exclusively in financial assets. So they invested in shares and they invested in bonds, municipal bonds, government bonds, corporate bonds, so on and so forth. But then from the beginning of the 1980s, two things happened. One is the amount of money they managed for others began to increase really fast. So probably before the 1980s, you're talking globally about less than a trillion dollars. Today, you're talking about a hundred trillion dollars. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. So that was one thing, and and a lot of that. In, so just in terms of where that money's coming from, a lot of it's retirement savings, so pension fund money. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is from insurance companies, and a lot of it, and an increasing proportion of it, is from big sovereign wealth funds. So the sovereign wealth funds of area of, of countries like Saudi Arabia. Uh, a lot of that is rooted through asset managers. So first of all, the amount of money they managed began to increase rapidly. Second thing was they diversified where they invested that money. And so they, they continued to invest principally in financial assets, but they also began to invest directly in what the industry refers to as real assets, which is physical things that you and I can lay our hands on rather than just numbers on the screen, which is what financial assets are. So they, used, they began buying, particularly they began buying commercial real estate. So they began investing in hotel chains, mm-hmm. like the Hilton chain was a big one for asset managers in the, in the 1980s. They began investing in shopping centers and they began investing in office, office blocks with the three main ones. So that's what happened in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, they diversified into new types of real assets, including the two that I focus on in this new book. So one of those is housing. So they extended from commercial real estate into residential real estate. So they began buying the houses that we live in. Yeah. And in all sorts of different forms. So we're talking about apartment blocks, uh, detached housing, which in the US they call single family housing. Uh, student accommodation is a big one. Care homes and even mobile home parks in, in the US. They've bought into all of those. Wow. So housing on the one hand and then uh, the other one I look at in the book, which began in the 1990s as well, was they began investing in infrastructure. So water and sewage infrastructure networks, transportation infrastructures, so toll roads, bridges, parking systems, what, you know, you name it, what have you. Telecommunications infrastructure, so fiber networks, data centers, mobile home mast, sorry, mobile uh, telephony masts and so on and so forth. And then last but not least, energy infrastructures. So uh, electricity, transmission, grids, gas, pipelines, and, and so on and so forth. And, and so the book, and this is where the, the, t- the title of the book comes in, Our Lives in, in Their Portfolios. So what, what I'm saying is that their portfolios 
increased their investment portfolios inc- increasingly filled up with assets with physical things that are actually really important to the living of everyday life for ordinary people they buy began buying the houses that lots of people live in and they began buying the infrastructures through which services that are essential to daily life clean water uh, electricity gas so on and so forth they began buying the infrastructure through which those essential services are provided and so the argument of the book essentially is that increasingly our lives are embedded in their investment portfolios and what they choose to do with the assets they own has a hugely significant set of implications for the everyday lives of people and people generally aren't aware of that because the reality is that very few people who live in homes owned by asset managers or and or use in rely on infrastructures owned by asset managers know that fact they're very distant in kind of legal and organizational terms. So most people don't know it. So Macquarie, I think it says on its website, that every day around 100 million people around the world use or rely on infrastructures that they own. But I would wager that less than 1% of those people have any idea that they are relying on Macquarie-owned infrastructures every day. I wonder if as well there would be people who may not think that asset management sounds like such a bad idea. They might be quite sympathetic to that yeah. as, a, as a way of doing absolutely. money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But were they to know that the very most fundamental stuff of their life was embroiled in that might be a little bit more distrustful think, of I, it? I think so. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair comment. Yeah, yeah. and I, sus- I suspect that's true. Because I think most people, when they think, you know, BlackRock and, and so on, they think that... Yeah, they're buying stocks and shares, and it's pretty distant from our lives. And I think it is when they're, when that's what they're buying. It is pretty distant from our lives. Mm. When they own, you know, 5% of this company or 7% of that company, you know, not only is it relatively distant from our lives, but often, especially with the big index fund managers like BlackRock, they are pretty passive as shareholders most of the time. You know, they own, you know, BlackRock owns shares in something like 20,000 different companies. It's not meddling in the everyday activities of those companies for the most part. It really isn't, even though, and and I think this is an important point, even though lots of people on the left assume they are because that kind of fits with our narrative of big evil finance, it's just not true. Yeah, definitely a conspiratorial vibe. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Picking up what you're putting down. (laughs) So I wondered if at this point I could pick up on some of the conversation about energy production from last night. Yeah, sure. Um, And I had some questions. There was some stuff that I thought would be really useful for you to restate so that other people can hear it too. Yep, happy to. And if you feel like I'm sort of starting in a weird place or glossing over things that you think are important, please just feel free to inject them. So last night you were talking about comparing... The transition, potentially, imminent transition maybe, um, from fossil fuels to renewable energy to the sort of initial transition from, say, water power to coal. Yep. Um, And as I understood it, you said that that initial transition from water to coal or that that kind of energy was not one that was necessarily cheap. It wasn't about it being a matter of reducing the costs involved, it was because coal was more profitable and so the outlay was worth it. Yes. And you said that renewables aren't necessarily profitable in the same way. Yep. And I wondered if you could explain 
that again, what you mean by yeah. that. Yes, because it's not a straightforward argument. Yes, yeah. and I'm, I'm particularly interested in, you know, we all have this kind of presupposition, or at least we're told that capitalism champions innovation. Yeah. And I would like to think about this in relation to that kind of mm-hmm. assumption. Okay, yeah, so, so my, my thinking about the transition to fossil fuels that occurred uh, first and, and very, very fundamentally uh, in the uh, during the Industrial Revolution in northwest England, very specific geographical place, uh, late 18th century, early 19th century, is really, really uh, shaped by the work of Andreas Malm. And he, and he makes what is, to my mind, a very compelling argument, which is that within the cotton industry, which is which is where the transition into fossil fuels, into coal and steam power was originally concentrated, that that transition occurred because it made, it was more profitable for cotton producers to use steam and coal than it was for them to use the water wheel. Um, and even though, contra a lot of the, the traditional his, his, historical literature on that transition, even though coal and steam were not cheaper than the water wheel, but there were certain factors related actually in significant part to geography, the, the spatial advantages of coal and steam were much more kind of spatially flexible than water power for obvious relying reasons. Relying on rivers or exactly. whatever, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you're relying on rivers, rivers and a water wheel, you have to have labour in one particular place and you're much more uh, susceptible to strike action and all those sorts of factors. So he makes a very compelling argument that was about profitability, that the transition to fossil fuels was about profit motives in the sector at that time, which, which obviously are influenced by cost but they're not reducible to cost okay so and the the argument i'm making now about what's happening today is an argument that's actually so whereas mal was talking about cotton industry the argument the area i focus on in my in my work today is electricity generation and the reason i do that is that electricity is at the very heart of the uh, energy transition that we are going through and that we need to go through and and there's a very good reason for that. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, so one is that electricity production is the in a, essentially the main source of existing fossil fuel emissions. So the the, the the greenhouse gas that is that is most responsible for global warming is carbon dioxide. The main source of carbon dioxide uh, emissions is uh, the combustion of fossil fuels. And then in turn, the, the main source, the main location in the economy of the combustion of fossil fuels is electricity generation. So that's one reason. But the other reason is that electricity is going to become even more important because the main way in which the world is endeavouring to decarbonise things like transportation and heating and buildings and so on is through electrification. So, mm. so electricity is at the very heart of the energy transition question anyway. So that's where my focus is. And the, the basic argument I'm making is that the transition away from fossil fuels in electricity generation, which is principally or well, almost exclusively coal and natural gas, there's a little bit of oil still, but not much, that the, the, the main reason that transition is going much slower than we need it to, it's happening mm. at, at a varying pace in different countries, but it's happening much slower than we, did, than we need it to, is that on the one hand, governments around the world have essentially for the most part, put the transition in the hands of the private sector. They've left it up to capital, Mm -hmm. for the most part. They've said, look, we expect you, the private sector, to build and operate wind and solar farms. 
we will sometimes support that and subsidize it and we can come back to that point uh, later but it's up to capital to do it to build it and to run it but on the other hand the, there's there's a very deep question mark about expected profitability in renewables and and capitalist investment occurs on the basis of expected profitability so capitalists only invest in an activity if expected profits exceed a kind of what you might call a an acceptable rate of return and that's always a relative question right so if you are a company like bp or shell you have your existing business that might be generating 15 percent returns per annum in oil and gas exploration and production and if renewables come along and you only expect to generate as is the case in renewables five six seven percent annual returns then your shareholders are going to ask some pretty serious questions about, well, why are you transitioning from a very profitable activity to one that's actually not very profitable? And so the, the argument I, I've been developing and that I'm working on for my, the next book that's going to be coming out is about the profit question around renewables and about the fact that not only are profits in renewables generally not great, but they're also highly unpredictable. And that too represents a very significant barrier to investment because you know, not only do, do, do capitalists want to see high expected profitability, they want profitability to be predictable. And in electricity, absent various forms of external intervention, principally from the government, it's highly unpredictable. And, and, and again, as I say, that presents a really significant barrier to, to, to investment. And so is this what you were saying about that, one, it relates to the ability to store renewable energy maybe not so much, but to also that we can't necessarily predict how windy it's going to be or stuff yeah. like that, that there's a question it's, of so, the world yeah. involved. I mean, yeah, all of that's relevant. I would say on the first one, so on the point of relatively low profits, I would say that probably the main reason for relatively low profitability is that it's it's a generally a pretty competitive business where there are relatively few barriers to entry. So... Unlike in oil and gas, where it's not so easy to just set up an oil and gas field, it's, it's actually pretty much anyone can set up some solar panels and, and sell electricity. Of course, doing it on a big scale is not very, it's not very easy, but genuinely the, the barriers to entry for new entrants are quite low, which means that competition is relatively intense and can increase very, very quickly. And as you know, political economists have told us for centuries, high competition generally depresses uh, profitability. So that I think that's a big part of the reason why profits are relatively low. Okay. The question of unpredictability of profitability has lots of uh, sources, but the, the biggest one comes down to, to the way in which electricity is sold in an increasing number of countries, So, if, and including New Zealand. So if you look at countries, around, and this is really, really important, if you look at countries around the world in which the electricity system has been and are marketized and liberalized, like New Zealand, like all of Europe, like most of the US, not all of it, but like most of the US, it's regionally differentiated there. Electricity, for the most part, is sold by generating companies into what are called wholesale markets. So they sell electricity into, a, into the wholesale market, where the companies that we buy our electricity from, the sellers of electricity, the, the retailers of electricity, where, that's where they buy the electricity. And the thing is that in, the, in wholesale markets, the price of electricity is unbelievably volatile. I, I don't think I can think of any other, I was saying this last night, I don't think I can think of any, that there's any other commodity where 
prices are so volatile, both over the long duration and incredibly short timeframes. They can vary by, you know, 900% from one hour to the next. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> but, that, but there were very good economic reasons for it, which we, which we don't need to get into, mm-hmm. um, I don't think. But there, it's, it's explicable. You can, if you look at how prices are set in that market, then you can see why it happens. But the, the, the thing is, is that that volatility represents great difficulties for developers of renewables, of renewables facilities when they trade, try to raise capital to build a new solar or wind farm. Because yes. the main way in which they raise capital is, is through loans. They go to banks and, you know, like we might go along to the local bank manager, they go to the bank and they say, we want to build a, a wind or solar farm and it's going to cost $100 million. And the bank says, okay, how much money, if you want to build, borrow that much money, how much money are you going to earn from selling electricity? And therefore, how likely is it that we're going to get our money back with interest? And how long is that going to take? And they say, oh, I don't know. Because if electricity costs in the wholesale market cost on average $10 per megawatt hour for the next 10 years, uh, you're not going to get much money back. We're not going to be, we're going to default on our loan. But you know what? Actually, if electricity costs $70 per megawatt hour on average over the next 10 years, you'll get your money back within five years. But you know what? Nobody can predict electricity prices, to be honest, two weeks ahead, let alone two years mm. ahead. And so banks do not want to lend to renewables developers unless there's some means of stabilization or support for electricity prices. From and a government. From, typically from, not only from a government. Mm. Interestingly, I'm not sure how much is happening here, but one of the other ways, the government's absolutely the main one, but one of the other ways is that what, what often happens is, and this is an aside, but it's actually quite an interesting one, is that you, a company like Amazon will come along and Amazon, you know, to, to, to power its huge server farms and so on, will say to a renewables developer, if you build this, this solar farm or wind farm, we will commit to buying all the electricity that it produces for the next 12 years and we'll pay you a fixed price. And the wind farm developer says, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Sign on the dotted line and Amazon does that. And the wind farm developer then turns around to the banker and says, look, Amazon's going to pay this much money. And the bank says, fine, we'll give you the money. Yep. So that's the other, that's the other main source of stabilization of revenues. But the main one is the government. And the governments throughout the history of renewables development for the last 20 or 30 years in every country throughout the world have provided a, a huge array of mechanisms of one kind or another to render renewables development what's called more bankable, which means it, that enables renewables developers to, to go to banks and raise finance. And, and that's kind of what government support of renewables is about, is, is about enabling it to be developed in the first place. And, and, and as I say, there's a huge range of mechanisms. In the US, the main mechanism is tax credits. So uh, many listeners will have heard of the Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden passed last year, and that renewed America's renewables tax credits for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. In Europe, there are mechanisms called things like feed-in tariffs or contracts for difference, which effectively give fixed prices for your electricity, that again, enable you to raise finance to build a new solar and wind farm. And there are other mechanisms in, in other countries uh, that we don't need to get into. But that's the reality is that you need that external support, typically from a government, to provide the kind of predictability and stability the assurance uh, or the ex- guarantorship or exactly, something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I understand uh, what you're saying. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question now, and hopefully this isn't a silly question, but so I'm not a finance person. <laughs> would asset managers, they wouldn't necessarily be 
looking for loans because they have the money from their investors. Yep, this is not a a stupid question So that's why they can get involved in the renewable development more easily because their money is already there. That's a great question. And it's a good question, obviously, because this is a live question in New Zealand right now because BlackRock has come along. This is kind of where I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. So asset managers play... Their involvement in renewables is at, typically at a particular stage and in a particular way. So think of a, a go back to the, the, the issue of a renewables developer who wants to build a new wind or solar farm. Lots of renewables developers, in fact, most renewables developers do not continue to own the uh, wind or solar farm after they've developed it. So their job is developing it. So they go through the whole process of getting the project to the point of being construction ready, typically. Mm -hmm. They might stay involved until it's actually been built. But they almost, there are some that can stay in, but most of them, once the solar wind farm has been developed and built, they get out and they focus on developing new solar. That's their business, it's developing it. And developing it involves raising loans to finance the construction. And, And so when they've done their job, when they've got the permits, when they've got the land that's needed, uh, when they've arranged for the delivery of the turbines, when they've arranged for, the, uh, for a grid connection, when that, all that's done and they've got a bank that's going to lend the money for it to be built, they sell the project to... Yes, I understand. Either to a BlackRock, a financial investor, or if you take a, com- a country like, uh, say, Sweden, or to a big energy company like Vattenfall. So they basically sell to a company that will own it and earn money from Long the generation term. of electricity. Yes. Exactly. So okay. that's where BlackRock comes in. And so what that means is that then BlackRock takes ownership of the farm. And it's BlackRock that has to repay, that essentially repays the loans. Yes, I see. Yeah? Yes, that, that makes Thank you for explaining yeah, that to me. Yeah, yeah that's really helpful. Yeah. And so what they're doing is BlackRock is providing equity finance, not debt finance, essentially, in the terminology of the trade. Thank you for yeah. explaining that. That's yeah. so really helpful. So it was helpful. not a stupid question. <laughs> yeah. um, and... Again, I'm one of the people who was like, what's BlackRock? I've never heard about yeah. this. And doing a little bit of cursory reading today, I understand, as you were saying before, you know, pension funds being involved, our KiwiSaver, as, as I can kind of glean, is, is what's involved there as well. Yep. Um, yep. So, yeah. Look, I just have a couple more things to ask, um, just a little bit aware of time. I could probably keep going yep, <laughs> for, for ages. Um, I was really interested in a comment that you made last night when you're a little bit critical of the line production, not consumption, which often is, you know, people will say, well, you know, what can I really do? There's no such thing as ethical consumption. I'm limited in my choices. It's at the point of production that yep. the change is made. Yep. And you, you know, rightly said that sometimes that's thrown about by people who actually do have a degree of financial autonomy to absolve them of having to make any particular choices. That's my belief. Yes. yes. So, so I understand that. I wondered realistically, what can average people do in the realm of consumption in order to have any kind of significant effect on this infrastructure being for the public good, being, I don't know, if people are looking to head in a certain direction, I guess a kind of leftist direction yeah. or whatever, yeah. what can they reasonably do? Yeah, well, I think there's if, if the question is, if we're talking about the growing control and ownership of these critical infrastructures by financial institutions like asset managers i mean there's not a whole heap one can do you know and there's a very good reason for that is that which which is that you know unlike things like air travel 
we can't stop consuming power. We yes. can't stop consuming shelter. We need those things. And that's precisely why the asset managers love investing in those. Yeah. Things. <laughs> Duh. I that mean, makes sense. <laughs> of course. And, and you, if you read, you know, when they talk to the media, they talk to the financial press about why they like investing in these things, that's what they say. They say, you know, during a recession, people still need housing mm. and they still need water and they still need to drive on roads. And so they're essential. That's the word they use. And so consumers are in a bit of a bind there. There's, not, there's, not, there's nothing you can do. You can't stop consuming those things. Mm. All you can do, I think, is add to... If, if, you, if you believe, as I do, that there are certain things like housing and like essential infrastructure which actually shouldn't be owned mm. by what are essentially ultra-capitalist financial institutions... And I explain in the book, Our Lives in Their Portfolios, why I think asset managers are particularly bad owners of these types of assets. If you believe that's the case, what can you do? Well, you can add, you can talk about it. You can add to what is currently very limited awareness of the fact that it even exists. And you can talk about what the problems are. Mm -hmm. But you can also, you know, if you are a public sector employee whose pension fund is putting capital into funds managed by asset managers that invest in housing and infrastructure, you can say, we don't think it should be. Yep. And, and you know, asset managers are thoroughly dependent on continuing to receive money to invest from their clients. And so if clients stop giving them money to invest, or at least stop giving them money to invest in particular things like housing, then they can't do it anymore. So that's what yes. people can okay. do. Okay, I'm going to review my KiwiSaver... <laughs> Um, <laughs> arrangement. <laughs> I wondered if you could tell me, and I'm I'm not going to make things any easier as we move through, but how do you think the transition to renewables should work, in your opinion? Um, and what sort of things can, you know, we talked a little bit last night about organised labour and unions and then also green movements in Europe here, elsewhere. Yep. What can those sort of movements or groups, coalitions, do to support that kind of vision, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in, as I, as I think I said last night, in the kind of Green New Deal as it was originally articulated by Bernie Sanders in the US and, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour in the, in the UK, which was a Green New Deal which had public ownership of energy and in particular increasingly as the world goes forward of renewable energy at its very centre. And, and actually, one, one of the things I would say is that lots of reasons have been... So for, for proponents of that vision, lots of reasons have been given for why they think that is preferable to the existing kind of dispensation, which is, as we said, very much focused on cap, private capital ownership. And I guess what, what my contribution, I think, is, is, to, is to add an, a, a reason for that, which is that... You know, so a lot of people say, well, capital can't... You know, it's not... In, it is, it's not designed to coordinate to provide the kind of coordinating power to to kind of corral all the different moving parts that are needed to drive forward the energy transition and i think that's that's true mm -hmm. and you, you need a kind of central planner to, yeah. to, to do that but i guess my work adds another argument which is that it's not profitable enough cap for capital and if it's not profitable enough for capital or if it's only profitable enough if government bears the risk yes then capital shouldn't be doing it in the first place yeah um so that's my kind of argument is that there's an additional reason why I think this should be public sector led and owned, which is that capital is not designed 
to deliver the energy transition because capital is about profitability and the energy transition is is a very uncertain profitability yeah so that i guess that's my argument that's a very reasonable argument i I think think so (laughs) (laughs) yeah very good that's great and do you think i wonder this this may be this is connected to the question in my mind but are there aspects of movements around say green movements or whatever that you think are maybe counterintuitive in any way to that actual end are there any obstacles that you see within people who are actually supportive of this end goal that's a good question and no I don't I don't know I mean I try to I mean I know that there are all sorts of kind of debates within the left and within green activism circles about best courses of action I tend to try to remain out of uh, out of those debates I mean I guess one of the things I would say is that you know, a lot of the, you know, maybe I'm misrepresenting things here, in which case I, I apologise for that. But one thing I often get the feeling is that a lot of the left, when it comes to, to energy questions, focuses quite a lot on kind of decentralised local community ownership of energy resources and things like that. And I and I totally understand that. However... It's I, replicating the sort of all about... Yeah, and and, and also I think... It's a bit small scale. Mm. And I think that, you know, we need large scale solutions. And and the only, realistically, the only actors that can provide rapid large scale solutions are capital or the state. And so the central state. And so I, I think that's an important factor as well. And I also think there's a thing about energy as well, which is a, you know, put it this way. If, if you have a local community that develops its own wind solar resources and is able for example to go off grid to disconnect from the grid well the grid is a national resource in most parts and so if if you're disconnecting from the grid and not contributing to the costs associated with the maintenance of that grid then everyone else is paying more actually yes so there's actually i mean i hate to say it there's actually something that's a little bit asocial about going off grid interesting and i think i didn't know how to articulate this as any kind of question but you sort of indicated last night that maybe in a much broader scale, I'm thinking internationally, that um, the way things are geopolitically could have an effect on whether it's local energy production, in this case within a state, yes, that would be incentivised. Yes. You know, we're thinking about like gas pipelines being affected by war and all that kind of stuff. Yep. yep. And I wondered, I, I guess I'm thinking in a weird way, is there something good about having a kind of international, not necessarily globalist, but component to the way that we produce our energy because it's a global problem. And so we kind of want to be embroiled within that Mm. and part of it. And I I guess what I'm saying is, for me, that's kind of analogous to what you're saying here about these kind of split off communities that are taking themselves out of it. And I imagine states doing the same sort of thing. Yeah. Did Uh, you have anything that you wanted to say uh, about that? That's a a great question. I'm not really... I'd not really thought about that. But you're, I mean, you, the premise of your question is right, which is that particularly over the last couple of years, but not obviously not only over the last couple of years, energy has become, the, the geopolitical component to the energy question has become so much more front and centre because of you know, what's been going on in Europe and historic reliance in, in various countries, not least Germany, on, on, on Russian uh, oil and gas. And so it has, has become more of an issue. And there has been a, a kind of a, a, one of the reasons, as I, as I said last night, one of the reasons that, there's been a, a renewed push 
for renewables development in many parts of Europe is, is precisely for energy security reasons and not for a, any yeah. any other reasons, let alone environmental reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, because because wind and solar don't rely on imports of fuel in the way that gas or coal-fired power stations t- typically do. You know, that question about kind of international solidarity as well as within nation solidarity is, is not is not one that I've is, is not one that I've thought about uh, actually. I guess all I would say there is that is that you already have significant forms of that that I think many people are not aware of. So people will know, for example, that if they're living in Europe, that that the, they'll certainly know now that the gas that they use to heat their homes or the gas that fires the power stations that provide the electricity that puts the lights on in their homes can come from overseas but often the electricity itself comes from overseas you have these huge interconnectors now that connect what were, what were traditionally national electricity markets and so there is this kind of deep-seated internationalism to, en- to, to energy provision that it's hard to see it being unwound mm. and I don't necessarily think it should be unwound I don't think that at all but I do think that how that internationalism is negotiated and reproduced going forward is going is, is clearly going to be inflected with geo, geopolitical questions. But in terms of a normative position on how that should look, I just haven't I haven't given it enough thought. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for it is a great entertaining question. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as as far as I'm concerned, I think this has been a very good conversation, and I'm I'm sort of I don't really have anything else to ask. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or? It doesn't necessarily have to be about what we've spoken about, a little sign-off. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I thought was, those were fantastic questions. I mean, super, super interesting. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed engaging with them. And, and they made me think, which is always the... Uh, Excellent. Which I'll take that. Be- <laughs> which is always the best, because you want your head to hurt a little bit <laughs> at, the end, at the end of one of these things. So exactly. thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Do you have a song that you'd like me to play? Ah, Yes. I don't know why it came into my head earlier, but it's called Unless It Kicks by Ockerville River. What gives this mess of grace unless it kicks, man? Unless it's fiction Unless it's sweat or it's songs What hits against this chest Unless it's a sick man's hand From some mid-level band He's been driving too long On a dark windless night With a Yeah.
Unless It Kicks by the American rock band Ockerville River and my guest Brett Christophers selected that song for you. Thank you so much Brett for a wonderful conversation. It's time now for a couple of resource recommendations. I'm calling them recommendations at the moment because the word reviews feels a little inept given that I very rarely include negative reviews. Anyway that said, Building Bridges, Bill Uren's Vision of Peace is a 2023 documentary film directed by the Ōtautahi Christchurch filmmaker and musician John Christoffels. It tells the story of Harold Wilfred, or Bill Uren, an Aotearoa New Zealand lawyer turned sheep and cattle farmer turned peace activist. Here's a quick clip from the film's trailer. The thing that struck me most about Bill was his pure integrity. He had this amazing sincerity and intellectual honesty, so he would explain all his motivations without reservation. He stood for Parliament in the early 40s as a Labour candidate. He also stood for social credit. Certainly in the 50s, which was a very narrow time for New Zealand's thought, uh, he was somebody who broke that mould and was something of a role model for others. And this, I think, reinforced to him the importance of social justice, of being able to speak the truth, and also of being able to engage in rational argument. I wasn't familiar with Bill Uren before having seen this film, and so I really enjoyed this story of an unlikely leftist. I enjoyed hearing about Bill's role in establishing federated farmers following the Great Depression, his intent very much being in line with unionism. 
I also enjoyed hearing about his role in the New Zealand Peace Council and his travels to China before and during the Cultural Revolution. Indeed, the film is all about the ways in which Bill Yuren challenged anti-communist and specifically anti-Chinese sentiment during the 1940s, 50s, 60s. I can't say for certain, given that I'm not super familiar with Bill Yuren, but I felt as though his socialism was perhaps downplayed in favour of his more palatable politics of peace and friendship. Still, I enjoyed the documentary, and I particularly enjoyed the incorporation of Bill Yuren's own documentary footage and readings from his own writings. I'm going to give Building Bridges, Bill Yuren's vision of peace, two and a half red stars, but I still recommend it. Next up, it's the podcast series, The Regrettable Century, which started in 2018, but which I've only just discovered thanks to the CSS's very own Thomas Roud. I'm just going to read now the description that the podcast's producers provide. Quote, the old forms of the left are moribund and the new forms are stupid. We're making a podcast that talks about the need to organise a dialectical pessimism and develop a Marxist salvage project capable of putting up a good fight as the world burns around us. A clean, honest and unsentimental melancholy is required. We've cultivated one and we would like to share it with you. So recent episodes of The Regrettable Century have focused on William Morris and his romantic Marxism, and many listeners will know that William Morris is a kind of unofficial patron saint of the CSS and the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies. Another episode that I listened to recently focused on Anatoly Lunacharsky and the God Builders. And my favourite episode, the one that Thomas Roud actually recommended to me first, is titled Bathing in the Warm Stream, the romantic and gothic strain of Marxism, with John, the lit crit guy, of Horror Vanguard, which is another podcast. So with reference to the German Marxist philosopher Ernst Bloch, this episode really discusses the extent to which any viable form of Marxism or socialism must be able to reflect and appeal to the so-called warm stream or the warm elements of human life, hope, utopianism, religiosity, creativity, as well as those colder elements of objectivity, scientific and economic analysis that is strictly dispassionate. Given that my background is in the study of magical realism, which I would argue is concerned precisely with the integration of those two streams, I found this episode extremely compelling. And I think that the resuscitation of the so-called warm stream of Marxism is absolutely in line with the work that the CSS and the NZFSS undertakes. At times, the podcast can get a little bit navel-gazy, but so can this one, so I'm still giving it four red stars. Okie doke, so time now for another song. This is Super's Good Food by the Dead Kennedys. Machines can do a better job than you, and this is what you get for asking questions. The unions agree sacrifices must be made. Computers never go on strike. To save the working man, you gotta put him out the pasture. 
Soup is Good Food by the Dead Kennedys, and that brings us to the almost end of this episode. As promised, however, I do have details of some CSS and NZFSS activities and events, including the first ever NZFSS conference. But first, some CSS events. On Wednesday the 13th of September, the CSS is presenting a talk by Executive Member Hayley Roud titled Adorno, Aesthetics and Alienation. 
says Haley, this talk will provide an overview of some elements of Theodore Adorno's aesthetic theory, as well as a handful of terms and concepts that recur in critical theory. The talk will take place at our favourite Space Academy in St Asaph Street, and its doors at 6.30pm for a 7pm start. Again, that's Wednesday the 13th of September. Do come along. Looking ahead to October, on Wednesday the 11th of October, the Canterbury Socialist Society is holding its 2023 AGM in lieu of an educational event. That takes place again at Space Academy from 6.30 to 7.30pm. The AGM is really an event for members only, but if you're thinking about joining the CSS or you're already a member and would like to get more involved, this is your opportunity. This is when we select new executive members and also when we prioritise things for the year ahead. So again, just a friendly invitation to our society and that event. Last but not least, it is the Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies inaugural national conference, which takes place, of course, over Labour weekend, Saturday the 21st of October through Monday the 23rd. Things kick off on the Saturday at Punky Brewster with a launch party for the fourth edition of the NZFSS magazine Commonweal. Sidebar, it's an excellent publication which is free to members of any socialist society affiliated to the NZFSS. Sunday the 22nd is essentially a full day of conference activity and that culminates in a keynote address by Daniel Lopez who's travelling to us from Melbourne. Daniel is a contributing editor at Jacobin magazine and a member of the Victorian Socialists, an organisation who have enjoyed success in local government electoral runs in Victoria over the past few years. Daniel's scholarly work includes close study of the Marxist theoretician Georgi Lukash. So how exciting is that? The conference wraps up on Monday the 23rd with an internal workshop around the possibility of launching an independently socialist electoral campaign ahead of local body elections in 2025. So, if you would like to attend this fantastic weekend of events, the good news is you can. Both the launch of Commonweal and the keynote address by Daniel Lopez are open to everyone, non-members, to enjoy the rest, I'm afraid you'll have to join either the CSS or another socialist society. In either case, you do have to register for the conference and you can do that via the NZFSS website, socialistsocieties.org.nz. That's also the place to go to join the NZFSS. There are some minimal fees associated with both of those things, but again, head to the website for all of the details. You can also find most of this on Facebook or feel free to send an email to Society at gmail.com. That truly is all from me. Since we have a longer slot this month, I will send you away with one last song. As a nod to our keynote speaker, Daniel Lopez, here's Footscray Station by the Australian emo band Camp Cope. Until next time, stay well. Ka kite anō.
thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.